The prophet Isaiah proclaimed God's word to the ancient Israelites in the 8th century BC. So that was about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, despite it having been 2,700 years ago from present, if you look at how the Israelites lived then and what life is like today, there really is no difference. You would say, well, of course there's a difference. We have technology and modernity, and, and so it's easy to see, yes, life is quite different today, but in actuality, there's little difference See, in Isaiah's day, people, many of them knew about God, but most did not actually know God. Isaiah's day was marked by great sin, by corruption, by rebellion against God's word. There was lots of religion, and yet it was, for the most part, very empty that was just duty aimed at maintaining the appearances in the eyes of other people. And what you had in Isaiah's day was the pursuit of idols, seeking to satisfy people's deepest longings. And what you had was a day marked by hopelessness and people living with great anxiety. Sound familiar? People have not changed. We are the same. We have the same sinful nature. And so society in some ways may change, but at our root, who we are as humans has not changed. And you have to know today in 2016, just like they need to know then in the 700s BC, you have to know and you have to believe that you have been created for a purpose. You have been created for the pleasure of God. You have not been created for you to find your own pleasure. You've been created for your maker's pleasure. You're created to know him, to enjoy him, and your soul will only find rest when you are deeply satisfied in God. So you have been created, and then you have been saved so that you can then see and then savor, taste, delight in, revel in, enjoy God's glory. So as we saw last week, you exist to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And today we're continuing that same thought in this series as we look at Isaiah chapter 40. And that is all that Isaiah chapter 40 is about. It is about seeing and then truly savoring the glory of God. So let's begin by reading Isaiah 40, the first five verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her welfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, that all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. Verse 5 is worth reading again. 
and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. God displaying His glory. But the Israelites, His people in this historical context, have been very unfaithful to God. If you read the previous chapter, chapter 39, it ends with God calling for judgment. He says that because of their sinfulness, God is proclaiming to the king, Hezekiah, through the prophet Isaiah. He is telling him that judgment is coming. He says that the day will come when Babylon will come into Jerusalem and will burn down the city and will completely destroy and level the temple. And those that survive the onslaught will be carried away as exiles to live in Babylon or modern-day Iraq. And so this is God's judgment over their sinfulness. And yet, the very next word in chapter 4, now remember, we have modern-day verses and chapters, but in the original writing, it didn't have verse or chapter distinctions. And so when you have the last word in verse uh, chapter 39, which was, what is it, verse 8, and then you go to 40, verse 1. It's the very next sentence in the original manuscripts. And so after God's judgment, the very next word is what? Comfort. So he speaks judgment for their sin, and then the very next word is comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Her iniquity is pardoned, it says in verse 2. So God is promising to pardon, to forgive their sins. He is promising to show them mercy. And God is promising to personally visit his people. He's not going to send his prophets. He will personally come down from heaven himself. And he is going to totally transform this world by displaying his glory that it will be as if the mount is being brought low and the valley is being brought up. He's turning everything upside down. He's transforming and he's going to change everything by displaying his glory. And in verse 5 he says that the glory of God be revealed. He says, in all flesh, all humans, everyone shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God has a plan to show mercy to his people to transform the lives of his people from all nations, as we see here in this room. And he is doing it. He is saving and transforming and showing his glory. And that is why he's doing it. This is why we gather together. Because when we together, the redeemed, who say Jesus is our Savior, he is our King, and we love him, and we treasure him above all else, when we proclaim this together, God's glory is displayed. And God wants all people, including you, to see his magnificence, to see his majesty. And that is what chapter 4 in Isaiah is about. He's revealing how majestic he is. He wants us to know him, his majesty, to see and to just savor his greatness. That's what majesty means, is greatness. And so as we look at Isaiah 40 this morning, we're going to ask three questions about the magnificence of God because chapter 40 is just displaying it clearly. It's screaming out, God is magnificent. God is majestic. 
God is great. He is amazing. See him. Behold him. Be in awe of him. Be in awe. And so we're going to ask three questions about this. And our goal this morning, as our goal ought to be every day, is that we would know Jesus and that we would more deeply treasure him know him more personally, that we would just be in such awe of him, that we would sense his presence in a more real, profound way. And may we then, out of this beautiful love relationship with God, that we would then reflect his glory in our daily lives, at home, at work, with our neighbors, in all of life. So the first question we're asking about God's magnificence, number one, is how does God display his magnificence? So how does God display his magnificence? Let's read that in Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 26. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, but surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with his span, and closed the dust of the earth in the measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in the balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket that are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are his beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likens compare with him? An idol, a craftsman, casts it, and the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts its silver chains. He who is to impoverish for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle on the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing. And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. 
when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, call them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Magnificent. Our God is so just utterly majestic. And reading his word is designed for us to just be in awe of him and of his greatness and recognizing the greatness just the sheer majesty of God is designed by God to cause our hearts to then bow down in worship and so when we see his magnificence the response the natural response to seeing it is to bow down and to just praise God like it says in Psalm 95 the Lord is great the great God the great king and then verse 6 Come, let us bow down in worship. And so seeing his greatness ought to, now if you don't see it, you won't bow down. But if you see it, if you get a glimpse of his majesty, you will be overcome. And the natural response is for us to bow down in worship. And so we sing. We sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We, we sing that we stand amazed in his presence. We sing how marvelous. We sing, we sing that it's amazing that you would love a sinner condemned unclean. But if we don't stand amazed at him, then we will not bow down. You see, seeing the magnificence of God is everything for a follower of Jesus. I mean, seeing his glory really is everything. We need a big vision of God. See, when you have a little vision of God, there is little transformation in your life. Little vision of God, there is little healing, little power. Little passion for Jesus, little hatred for your sin, little resolve to defeat your sin. There is little passion for the lost, little self-sacrificial service. And yet, when we have a really grand vision, a big vision of God, it leads to us having everything that we need to live a life that is big for him. And even in the ordinariness of our lives, we can live with big passion for Jesus and for the lost and to know him more. And this chapter, Isaiah 40, is designed to give us a really big vision of who God is. And it's designed to overwhelm us. And so reading and rereading verses like these The Spirit of God then takes it in our hearts, and we become gripped by Him. And what what you see here in this chapter, it's like wave after wave after wave of God's glory that is just crashing on you. And it's designed for you to feel the weight 
of his glory upon you. That's what this chapter is designed to be, that we would just feel the weightiness of God's glory. And so what is God really like? This chapter is screaming it. So how does God display his magnificence? Well, you see here in salvation, if you're following, if you're taking notes, how does he display that he's magnificent? Well, he does it through salvation. You see it, we read it earlier, verses 1 through 3. It says God is showing comfort, and he shows mercy. It says that he is going to pardon, so he's going to forgive the sins of his people. And that God himself will come down to save his people from their sin. It even describes the ministry of John the Baptist who came, who prepared the way for Jesus. And then verse 2, it says iniquity is pardoned. And so our sins are forgiven because of the one that John the Baptist proclaimed, Jesus. Jesus who upheld the holy standard requirements of God and Jesus who overcame our sin, who overcame death through his resurrection. Verse 11 describes Jesus as well. It says that he will tend to his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. In John 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And so you see here, 700 years before Jesus was even born, you have John the Baptist prophesied. You have Jesus being talked about as the lamb who will, or as, as the shepherd, rather. But understand that with all of these blessings and all of this goodness and mercy, the only thing that we deserve from God is judgment. That's what we deserve. As rebels, we have personally offended a holy God. And because of our sinfulness, we deserve God's judgment. But I think the problem with us is oftentimes we talk about our sin and we think of it as individual sins. And this is what most people think about it this way. Like, we think, oh, I did this one thing wrong or this one individual sin. But that is actually not going deep enough. Our sin is down to our nature. Our hearts are corrupted. We have a sinful nature. We live in a state of sin. And it's not hard to prove. I'll just ask you one question. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself every minute of every day? No, you don't. You and I live in a state of sin. And it's much deeper than the individual infractions that we can account for. It's our nature is corrupt. And yet, God loves you, and he loves you deeply, and you are treasured. And that's the reason why God sent his son, Jesus, God in the flesh, who is the sacrifice, who took your place, because he did love the Lord, his God, with heart, mind, soul, strength, and neighbor as himself every second of every day. He did do it, and he continues to do it. And so he alone is holy, and he alone upheld God's 
holy requirements. And so now, because he's worked on the cross, those of us that trust him, we now live in a state of mercy. No longer living in the state of sin, we have been declared justified and are being sanctified, being made holy by the Spirit who is holy, who lives in us. And so we now live under the mercy of God and we live in a state of grace. And now you live with the holy presence of God who is making you more like himself. And this is glorious. I mean, you stop and you think about this when every other religion says, do, work hard, do your prayers, make sure you fast from this hour to that hour. And all of this activity to undo all of your sinful actions. And God says you could never, ever hope to undo them because it goes too deep. It's down to your nature. And so I'm going to give you a new one that you could never earn, that you don't deserve because I love you so that you can be close to me forever. This ought to overwhelm us. We ought to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and sing how marvelous. This is, this is the response to the mercy of God ought to just be overwhelmed gratitude and praise that God is displaying his glory in redemption, in salvation. And so the fact that God takes rebellious sinners like me and like you and that he transforms us into saints who hate their sin, who love God and who hunger for his presence. Humans can't do this. This is the work of God. And it displays his glory. But how else? He displays his glory, his magnificence, by being unchanging. You see it in verses 7 through 8 that he's displaying it by being unchanging. He says that God's word will stand forever. It says in Hebrews 13, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so what you have here what's being revealed with God's word that will stand forever and will not change is that understand this, if our God changed, then we would not know whether or not we could trust him. But because God is good and he doesn't lie and he doesn't change, we can have great confidence and trust. He is reliable. He is faithful. And so God being unchanging displays his glory, we can now rest in him. Verses 12 through 14 describe that God is wise. And so he shows that he's magnificent by being wise. So as the wisdom, as a creator, it says, whom did he consult? Who taught him knowledge? And so who taught God anything? He's like, well, no one. God has all wisdom. He is the fountain. He is the source of all wisdom. And so we can rest in our God who is wise and know that what he is doing, what he's working out in his plan is perfect. And even his timing is perfect. He's wise. We can rest in him. Even when there's chaos in our lives and uncertainty, we can trust in a God who is wise and who is never confused, never surprised, but is working out his plan to display his glory through your life. 
But next, you see in verses 15 to 17 that he is the infinite. And so he's just going through these verses. We can't reread them. We read them once already. But verses 15 through 17 describe how he is an infinite God. He says that he is so big that all the nations of all the world are like a drop from a bucket. That's how all the nations of the world together, it's just minuscule compared to God. And then it says all the coastlands, so all the beaches of all the world are just like a little bit of dust on God's hand. It's just, it's like, like, there's, like it's nothing to him. All the sand of the world. And he said the world would be nothing and emptiness without God. And so he is infinite. But next, he is matchless. Verses 18 through 20 reveal that God has no rival. There is nothing and there is no one that could even be compared to him. There is no one like him. He is incomparable. And so it says all the idols that we could make, all the idols that we would set up for ourselves, can't even begin to compare to the glory of God. It says that they're all fakes they can't even move. So our idols are counterfeits that would promise us joy and meaning and purpose and security. But they can't even move. They're counterfeits. So our idols can't satisfy. But God, who is without any rival, he's matchless. Only God is God. Next verses, 21 through 24, show that he is sovereign. It says that he is a creator and he says he sits above the earth. He is sitting above the earth like the ruler, the king. And it says that he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And so all the rulers, all the kings of this world, that they're all corrupt. There is not one government that is not. And yet, God is the ruler above all of them. He is the sovereign who has all authority. He is in control. And so what does this mean for us? We rest. We rest in His all-powerful, all-knowing sovereignty, knowing that He is working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We rest in Him knowing that He is sovereign. But next, verses 25 and 26 show that He is powerful. These verses show that He has eternal power. It describes the stars and how there are billions upon billions and trillions of stars in the universe. And it says God knows all of them by name. And so He's named trillions of stars. It says by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one star is missing. So this is just showing his absolute, indescribable power. And so we can entrust our souls and truly depend on God with whatever you are facing today. Because we sing that he is stronger and he is, but we have to be in awe and truly know and believe that he is all-powerful. You see, Isaiah 40, we're going through it very quickly here. I, I get that, but 
What this chapter is describing is, again, the utter magnificence of God, that He is a merciful Savior, that He is unchanging, He is wise, infinite, matchless, sovereign, all-powerful. Again, wave after wave of God's glory that's designed to just crash on you, and we feel the weight of it. What is God really like? It's right here in the Word. This is what He is like. And we must see him. We must see and have a big vision for him and be truly overwhelmed by him. Do you know him? This God that is so majestic and so powerful and eternal is also personal. Who loves you and wants you to know him and to revel in him. Do you know him? I mean personally. If you're not enjoying a relationship with God, you can do so today. Repent of your sins, completely trust in Jesus, his work on the cross, and he will save you. He will give you his spirit, and you will sense his presence, and he will change your life, and you will stand with us in awe of Jesus. And so this is how he displays his magnificence and what he does and who he is. But number two, second question, well, how should we respond to God's magnificence. If this is who he is, this big vision of God, how should we then respond to his magnificence? Let's finish the chapter. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Praise God. The only appropriate response to seeing the majesty of God is to fall before him in worship. And so how should you respond to God's magnificence? Worship. This is how we respond. It's the only response is to treasure him, to treasure the glory of God. And so treasuring Jesus is the essence of worship. So whatever has the most worth in your life is what you worship. So when we give our hearts to worship idols, it could be anything, romantic relationships, it can be immoral practices, money, success, power, you name it. Whatever it is that we give our hearts to find our hope in, to find our joy, our comfort, our meaning, our security in, because they're counterfeits, they will leave us disappointed and disillusioned. So when you set your hope on something that lets you down, you then have really, as I understand it, only four options. And it's here if you're taking notes. The first one is when, when you have disappointment, you may respond with addictions. This is one very common way to respond to being disappointed or disillusioned. Is so I say if it was a relationship, oh, this didn't work out, well, I'll leave this and I'll go get a better one. I'll go get another girl. Or I'll go look at 
more images that I shouldn't look at. Or I'll, I'll just divorce and get a new wife. I'll just try with another one. And so we, we think that by going to the next one, that, that somehow it's going to satisfy. Now, this first one didn't, but this next one will. And the next one will. But in the end, none of them ever do. And it leaves us with this cycle of addiction where we're trying to finally find joy and meaning and hope and peace, but we're not finding it. And so we just keep trying and trying, and it just leaves us more addicted. Others respond with self-hating. So they're disappointed, they're hurt, they're disillusioned, and so they think, well, I'm just a failure. Something's wrong with me. I just can't get it right. Maybe I just can't be happy. And they live in this depressed, feeling sorry for themselves, self-pity, constant thinking, there's no way, nothing can help me, nothing can change, and there's just this self-hatred rather than looking to Christ. It's just this either addiction or this depressed, self-loathing cycle. Others become cynics. So cynicism, what is that? Well, that's being very negative. This is blaming the world or blaming the universe that things aren't going your way. And so this becomes very hard, cynical, very empty, being very pessimistic. And so some people just respond in this very harsh way. But the fourth and the only real option is focus on Jesus. In your disappointment, in your being disillusioned, in your being hurt, in the very real pain, you must reorient your whole life toward God and focus on Jesus every day. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Him. Keep beholding His glory. It's the only way. There's no other way. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for something divine. We were made for an infinite, eternal love that you won't find in this world. You were made for another one. You and I were made to experience the love of God, and only He can satisfy. And when we look to idols, it'll lead to addiction, self-hating, being cynical, and all kinds of unhealthy approaches, and yet only truly surrendering, truly trusting Jesus is a solution. Worshiping Him. Jesus is what you need. This is, He is it. He is what you need. And we must depend on him. Let him be our greatest desire. Number three, last question. So what happens to us when we respond to God's magnificence? So we're seeing he's displaying it and who he is and what he does. We ought to respond with worship. So what happens to us when we do respond with worship? Well, verses 29 through 31 says that those who rest in God will receive power. He says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
And so what happens to us when we respond with worship? God's Spirit gives us strength. He gives us strength. Strength for what? To follow Jesus. Strength to change. Strength to face your sin. Strength to get up in the morning. Strength to find joy in Jesus. Strength to focus on God. Strength to be healed. The strength that we need to live the life on mission for Jesus. He gives us this strength, and it's supernatural. And we only receive it when we focus on Jesus. We worship Him, and we're in awe of Him, like this beautiful chapter describes. And so there's a reason why the chapter ends with you have strength. It begins with you have comfort, and it describes God's indescribable glory, and it says, okay, if you focus on this, you'll get strength. If you don't, you won't get strength. Are you weak today? Are you really struggling? Are you just feeling spiritually, emotionally, maybe even physically just worn down or tired from the fight, and you just feel just worn down or tired, if you're weak, look to Jesus. Focus on him. Rest in him. Worship him. There's no other solution. Verses 9 and 10, as we close, are beautiful. Verse 9 and 10 say, if you belong to God, he says, you're a herald of good news. So you are a messenger, a herald of good news. God has given us this message. We are the heralds who proclaim it. And what is, what is this message? He says, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. This is the message. Look to God. See him. Behold him. And he came. He already came. His name is Jesus. And so the message is, look to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For forgiveness and joy are found there. And God wants a whole world to see him, his majesty, his magnificence, and be treasured. So if you're a follower of Jesus, guess what you are? You're a missionary. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, by definition, you have a mission. You are a missionary. And the more that we are gripped by his magnificence, the more our life will change. The more that you will want to tell others, serve sacrificially, experience his healing. And display the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so humbled, grateful, gripped by your glory. And we so want to be in awe of you. We want to be in awe of you and nothing else. And so I pray that your spirit would be so active that we would see more beauty, more glory, more joy in you than anything else that this world could ever hope to offer us. They will be a people that are heralds of this good news, messengers of the gospel. How we want to see more people saved, more people worshiping you, Father. We so desire to see not just this room filled, we want to see multiple churches in this city completely filled with worshipers, Father. We want it for your glory, for your worthy. We pray in the name of our King and first love, Jesus. Amen.